as mentioned, tonight is the actual yard site. And it is customary that we mention the name of the Neshama. Levi Yitzchak ben Yabadol L'chaim Tevim Harav Shner Zalman. His Neshama should have an Aliyah until the ultimate Aliyah of Mashiach coming and bringing back all of our departed loved ones to be here together with us in this physical world. Amen. And it should be before we even have a chance to leave this library tonight. This is the Levi Yitzchok Library, which is named after Levi. And I have a personal connection to this physical location. As Rebetzin Wallowick mentioned, I have the privilege of teaching here twice a week. It's interesting because when I first started teaching, when I came here to the Five Towns, I was teaching at Chabad upstairs, and uh, something sort of summoned us to end up over here. So um, this, this became a place where not only do hundreds of people come to learn I'm just talking about my classes, not to mention all the other activities that happen in this space, but the, the, the classes that I give where hundreds of people a year are coming to learn in this physical space, but actually because of the wonders of modern technology from this place, thousands, and I, I, I think actually more accurately, tens of thousands of people are learning Torah that's coming out of this physical space, which is named for Levi. And... Um, I want to talk about a little bit about the deeper meaning of that, about a physical space, a building, specifically a library that is named for someone who um, has passed on, and why, why that's so particularly meaningful. The first monument, physical monument, built for someone who has passed on that we find in the Torah is for our mother Rachel, Rachel Emenu. And it's built by her husband, by Yankov Avinu, by uh, Jacob. And it uses the term Matseva, that the Yatsev Yankiv Matseva, Yankiv stood up a we translate it as monument, literally it means something that's standing. He propped up an upright pillar, maybe you would call it. And that's the first time you find a physical monument that is associated with someone who has passed away. It's interesting, there are other names as well for this uh, physical marker. Another term, we also find it in the Torah, in, uh, in the Prophets. Specifically in the prophet Yechezkel, we find the term tzion. Tzion means a marker or a designation. So that's another term that's used. And in the Mishnah, which is later, it uses the term nefesh. It talks about collecting funds for the deceased and spending it to buy a monument, a physical marker, which it calls a nefesh. The translation of nefesh usually is soul, but in this context it means a, a grave stone. So it's interesting, why do we have these three terms? 
one explanation that's given is that a matseva, like I said, is, is a pillar. It's something that's upright, something that protrudes from the ground. It sticks up. So that alludes to the function of a memorial as being something that helps you to spot it. If you're trying to find a grave, so, oh, there it is, because it's, it's sticking up, you can find it. Tzion means a marker. That alludes to the fact that you want to designate where the grave is so somebody can avoid it. Specifically, like, where would this be most pertinent, like with a koyhein, who has a mitzvah to avoid ritual impurity. So uh, there's this concept of a tzion, of a marker, to let everyone know this is where the grave is. Obviously, today we have more organized cemeteries. It's not really such an issue, but that's, that's the origin of the term. But nefesh is a much deeper concept. And it's the idea that nefesh, meaning soul, is that the physical marker allows one to connect to the soul of the person whose resting place is on that site. But it, it, it's a funny concept. Why do we refer to it as a nefesh, as a soul? A soul is something intangible, spiritual. And a marker, a physical monument, is the exact opposite. It's something material. So to understand this, we really have to understand our relationship with people who have passed on. Because we do have a continuing relationship even with those who are no longer physically with us. And, in fact, it's a very important relationship. We have a great responsibility toward the souls. So what's the nature of the relationship? The soul lacks a body. And... A body can be a hindrance, it can be for a soul a very annoying thing, especially when the soul first arrives in this world, and all of a sudden it feels very limited. Imagine a soul in heaven, completely unrestrained, unfettered by any limitations. It's a spiritual being inhabiting a purely spiritual world. And then it comes down to the physical world, and uh, it's contained you know the, the physical world, how it works. You can't have two things in one place, and one thing can't be in two places. So the, the soul all of a sudden now is kind of stuck. It can only be where it is. It can't see from one end of the world to the other. It's stuck in time as well. Time can, tends to drag here in the physical world, in this time-space continuum. Plus all of the spiritual sensitivities that it had are sort of overwhelmed or drowned out by the physical stimuli. The soul used to be basking in rays of godly splendor, and that was its entire consciousness and awareness. It was just spirituality. It comes down here, and it's being distracted by all the physical stimuli. You know, imagine... Somebody is trying to tell you an, an important message, and it, a terribly important, life-changing message, except they're sitting in the other room whispering, and you're in the next room 
with 20 radios playing on full blast on different stations. And you're trying to hear the message in the other room. That's like the soul that comes into a body and all of a sudden it's beset with all of this all of the stimuli, the, the, the sights and the sounds, the smells, the touch, everything from this physical world. And you could understand why that would be very frustrating for a soul. And yet, there's a reason why Hashem sends souls to this world. Not to torture the soul, God forbid. But to enable the soul to accomplish, uh, to accomplish its purpose. And what's its purpose? To make this world a better place. To leave heaven and come down to earth so that eventually, through the culmination of all of our good deeds, this world becomes holier than heaven. That's what Mashiach is. That this physical world becomes so perfected that it is holier than the highest heaven. Which is why when that finally does occur, all of the souls will come back in the resurrection. Because at that point, there will be nowhere to go in order to ascend other than to come to the physical world. Think about it like this. A yard site is a day of ascent. That's why Kaddish is said, because Kaddish is a prayer which facilitates the transition of the soul. Transitions are difficult, even when it's an ascent, even when you're elevating, even when you're going somewhere higher and better. Moving is difficult, stressful. And for a soul also, movement is, is stressful. So Kaddish is recited in order to facilitate that uh, transition. And every yard site, the neshama goes to a higher level. What does a higher level mean? It means more revelation, more godliness. Think about Moshe Rabbeinu. Think about Moses who passed away 3,300 some odd years ago. And every year on Zion Adar, on the seventh day of the Jewish month of Adar, he ha that's his yard site, he has another ascent, and he goes to another rung higher in heaven. Think about how many levels, thousands of levels of ascent Moses had. And yet what's going to happen very soon is Mashiach will come, and there will be a resurrection, and souls will come back to bodies. So Moses, who was going level after level after level for thousands of years, what's going to happen? He's going to suddenly make a U-turn? He's going to come back the opposite direction, come into a physical body? Why are we doing that? And the simple answer is because it's not an actual U-turn. He's not reversing his progress. He's actually continuing his progress. Because when Mashiach comes, the physical world will be so perfected It'll be the highest level of reality. And so in order for Moshe Rabbeinu, who's at the highest levels of heaven, to go even higher than that, the only way you can go even higher would be to come back to the perfected physical world. And every soul that's here in the world, experiencing its embodiment, is part of that process of engaging the physical world, of doing mitzvahs, which are physical actions. Mitzvahs are not meditations. I mean, we can meditate in order to increase our kavona, our intent, so that we can do the mitzvahs with greater concentration and greater meaning. But at the end of the day, it's about the physical action. And a soul can only do those physical actions with a body. So if we think about the ongoing relationship between 
those who are still experiencing their embodiment and those who have finished their current embodiment and are awaiting re-embodiment. What's the nature of that relationship? <coughs> it's that we who are here in the physical world need to create a physical impact or an opportunity to have a physical influence and effect for those souls. Because as high as they are in heaven, ultimately they understand that the ultimate purpose is down here. And in fact, that's what they're awaiting. They're awaiting for the, the perfection of this world when they'll come back here. But they don't have bodies, so what do they do? That's where we come in. Is that we have to provide physical containers for these souls. Now, one very simple way to do so, and this is the most highly recommended course of action that anyone who is in mourning, anyone who's lost a loved one, should do another mitzvah. Just do another mitzvah. Which mitzvah? Any mitzvah. Because anything you do, whether it's light Shabbos candles or put on tefillin or give charity, anything you do that's physical is providing the soul with an opportunity that it doesn't have on its own. Then there are some particularly meaningful ways of giving the soul, the departed soul, a connection to the physical world that have sort of emerged as as customs among the Jewish people. And there are deep, deep reasons, mystical reasons behind these customs. And one, one of them is dedicating a, a Torah scroll. I'm sure you've heard this custom, dedicating a Torah scroll. What's, what's the concept of dedicating a Torah scroll? Well, first of all, it's physical. It's a physical thing. But it has even more meaning than that. There's a, there's a, very shocking story, which is described in the Talmud about the murder, the execution, the torture of one of the 10 martyrs. We read about the 10 martyrs on the, on the day of Yom Kippur. And one of them was Reb ben Tradyoy. And the cruel Romans wrapped him in a Torah scroll. And then they set fire to it as his form of execution. And as the fire was burning him, he was surrounded by his students who were obviously in shock, and they, they, for some reason, they saw, they sensed that their teacher was in a deep state of, of spiritual attachment, not the way you would, not the way you would expect somebody being executed in such a gruesome way. And they asked him, Rebbe, what do you see? What do you... <laughs> What do you see? What are you looking at? We know what we see. 
But what are you, what are you watching? So he said, I see that the parchment is burning, but the letters are flying into the air. What, is, what does this mean? Well, some explain that it's a metaphor for Hananya ben Tradyan's own experience, that he was a living Torah scroll. He lived and taught the entire Torah to his students. And when he was dying, it was like the destruction of a Torah scroll. His physical body was being burnt alongside a physical Torah scroll, which was also being burnt. And uh, the symbolism, and, and quite literally, the, the pairing of these two was, was a very clear message of the destruction of the Torah. And in fact, that's why he was being targeted. It was specifically, to, he wasn't targeted for any other reason than the fact he was a Torah scholar. And yet, what's, what's the message? They can destroy the physical Torah scroll, but the Torah that I taught you, the letters are flying into the air. Those don't, those don't disappear. The lessons I taught you, the truth I taught you, can never be destroyed. So they can burn this Torah scroll, God forbid, but the lessons still are intact. And the same thing, they can destroy my physical body. But my relationship with you continues. They can't take that away. There's nothing they can do to take that away. So there's this deeper symbolism, this comparison that a Jew is like a Torah scroll. And that the physical parchment and the, and, and the wooden handles and the cloth cover, the, the actual physical Torah scroll that is such a familiar sight to, to any of us who have ever prayed in a synagogue, we all know what that looks like. That's a, that's a metaphor for the body. But then there's the wisdom of the Torah, the, the, the lessons of the Torah, which are abstract. It's information. It's not physical. It's timeless. It's eternal. That's like the soul of the Jew. So when there's a Jew who's passed on and no longer has his body, one of the most fitting things we can do is to create, so to speak, another body. A Torah scroll. But a Torah scroll specifically because it's not just a physical object. I mean, there are a lot of physical things that will, those could also be a symbol for the body. But no, a Torah scroll. Why? Because although a Torah scroll is a physical object, you know, if you walk into a synagogue and someone says, oh, we don't have a Torah scroll, but somebody knows the Parsha by heart. It was his Bar Mitzvah Parsha. He'll just say it by heart. That's not a kosher Torah reading. It has to be from the physical scroll. So on one hand, we need the physical scroll. On the other hand, what's the real, enduring, eternal power of the Torah scroll? Are the words, the holy words, and the meaning that is conveyed through the reading of that Torah scroll, which is then transmitted into the hearts of the listeners, which they bring with them wherever they go, even after they've left the, the physical place where the Torah scroll was read. So this is a symbol, a very poignant and potent symbol of giving a physical representation, a body, to someone who no longer or for the time being does not have their body, but a body that is also a symbol of how a body 
has more significance than just being a physical object. A Torah scroll is not just a physical object. It also has a soul. It has all of the wisdom and the information and the light that it transmits when we listen to it. So what's happening there is this dynamic interplay between the person for whom the Torah scroll is dedicated and named and the physical Torah scroll that's written and the light that's generating from it. I'm talking about the, the spiritual light, the wisdom that's being generated from it. And so it's as if that Jew who no longer or temporarily until we're waiting for resurrection doesn't have a body has a sort of body for now. That becomes their body. But once you understand that, then you could also understand that it doesn't have to necessarily be a Torah scroll. In fact, it could be any book. And we're surrounded by books right now, thousands of books. And these are books whose letters literally fly all over the world. I don't know if everybody understood what exactly the nature of this, Robinson Wallerwick was de describing the, the way this library functions. Not only is it a very uh, unique building in, in the five towns and it provides a service it was the first of its kind, and it provides a unique service, but it has significance all over the world because these books here are also part of a lending library for the children of Shluchim, who don't have Jewish libraries where they are living in their far-flung remote communities. And so there are, there are books that are sent out, that are flown around to wherever it is that Jewish children need them. So think about that. You have something physical. A book, a book, it's a physical thing. And it's flown to some kid in Montana, and the kid reads it and returns it. But you remember when you were a kid and you read books? I'm sure you remember some of the books that you read. Do you know where those physical books are right now? The actual, the actual copy? Maybe, maybe not, probably not but you can remember what you read. It started from a physical book. I mean, especially if you're, if you're old like me, you read it from a real book. I mean, nowadays, I don't know, maybe the kids read it from a Kindle or a hologram. I don't know what they read it from. But, and thank God, the real books are being kept alive by Shabbos observant people because on Shabbos, you have no choice but to read a book. But think about that. A book is a physical thing, and it goes out to some kid who doesn't have a Jewish library in his town, and he or she reads the book, and the book comes back here to Cedarhurst. But the lessons that are imparted from that book, they remain in the, in the, in the mind and the heart of that child. The experience. You know, sometimes when you read a book, the right book, an experience that you read about in a book can, can change your life more than an experience that you have in your actual life. So think about that. Think about this metaphor, which is both symbolic and literal in this case, how you can have a physical object, but that phys which is a body, but then that physical object brings with it a soul.
And the truth is, it doesn't even have to be a book if you follow this whole theme and you understand how it works spiritually, why it makes sense, then you begin to understand why a building, a building is a metaphor for a body. And that a building, although it's a physical structure, and therefore it's a symbol of a body, but it also has a soul. This building has a soul. This is not a pizza shop. This is not uh, a gym. Nothing wrong with, I mean, if you go to the pizza shop enough, you better go to the gym. But <laughs> Think about what happens in this physical space. Think about all of the, I can't even compute, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of letters that were read in this place. They were read from physical pages, ink on paper. That's the body. But they changed lives. That's the soul. And you know it's a soul because even after the person walks out from this physical place, the things that they understood while they were here, the class that they attended or the book that they read, they can then take that anywhere they go. It's not tied down. It's not physically, you know, physical objects are where they are. They can only be where they are. They can, you, you can't put them in all places at all times. But a person who's come to a place and had an experience that changed the way they think, that gave them an insight, that gave them a Torah perspective on life, that's with them wherever they go for the rest of their life. And even after their physical passing, because somebody who read something in a book doesn't just change you during your physical lifetime. You bring that information with you up to, to heaven. In fact, what is the main experience of the souls in heaven is just reviewing everything they read. Yeah. What is the experience of souls in Gan Eden, in paradise? Is they get to relearn the Torah that they learned down here but now without a physical body, it's all clear to them. The filters are off. And they get to experience the sweetness and the pleasure of all that, that light. I want to share with you a letter from the Lubavitcher Rebbe that was written to comfort a grieving father who lost his son. And not that it makes a difference to the message of the letter, because the, le the, the message of the letter is a universal one, but for the sake of context, I will tell you that the letter was written to Ariel Sharon in Yud Gimel Tishrei Tovshin Chof Ches, that's the autumn of 67. And if you know anything about the history of Israel, so you'll know that Ariel Sharon was a little bit busy a few months before the autumn of 67, yeah? The Six-Day War. So he was a big war hero, and in fact, the Rebbe mentions in this letter how much of a Kiddush Hashem it was that 
He was publicly photographed putting on tefillin at the Kotel. Remember, 67 is when they liberated the Kotel. They had access finally to the Western Wall, and there's a famous picture of Sharon putting on tefillin. He wasn't a particularly religious person, so the fact that he did that was a very meaningful statement of Jewish pride. And so the Rebbe writes to him a letter of condolences that after a few months after a few months after the war, his son, Gur, passed away in an accident at home. And uh, the Rebbe even mentions how tragic it is that in time of war and calamity and danger, that his his family was safe, and then in the time of peace this tragedy befell him. And, 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 and the Rebbe mentions that it's impossible for us to know Hashem's ways and we cannot fathom why something like this would happen. Um, but I want to share with you particularly the second half of the letter. The letter's three pages. And it's printed in Chelek Chofhe of Igris, volume 25 of the Rebbe's published correspondences. It's on uh, page three. So I'll just read to you, or I'll paraphrase for you, the second half of the letter. After the Rebbe expresses his, con- his condolences and he explains that it's impossible for us to understand Hashem's ways and points out the tragedy of this uh, young person being lost in, in, in this timing and under these circumstances. So then the Rebbe says the traditional words of consolation. May the omnipresent comfort you. Among all of the mourners of Zion and Jerusalem. And anyone who's been in a shiva house, and we shouldn't know from such things, but if you've, there should never be a shiva house again, but if you've been to one in the past, you've probably heard those words. In fact, many times they'll have a sign printed so that, uh, in case you forget the line, it's right there, you can read it. Sometimes even it's transliterated make it, to make it even easier. So the Rebbe says like this, seemingly, it's strange that when we're comforting a family for the loss of their loved one, that we're invoking the destruction of Jerusalem and of the Holy Temple. Like, what does one have to do with the other? Why are we grabbing onto that concept here? Here's a family, they lost their loved one. Okay, so that's one concept. Then there's this thing that happened 2,000 years ago when the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. And obviously it's a, it's a huge calamity, but seemingly it's, other than the fact that they're both tragic, there's not a lot of overt connection. Especially if you think about one is of a national level or proportion and the other, the other, other one is, is, uh, is individual. It's happening to a family. So that's precisely the point. And this is what the Rebbe says. That when a Jewish family, God forbid, loses a loved one, 
the reason why the rest of us comfort them, specifically with these words, that may you be comforted among the mourners of Zion and Jerusalem. Who are the mourners of Zion and Jerusalem? We all are. All of us. And the Rebbe says, although obviously someone who's there in Jerusalem and sees that the temple is in ruins, is going to feel it more poignantly, the reality is that every Jew everywhere in the world is affected by the destruction, that we're all in exile, and it's a shared tragedy. So we comfort the family by reminding them that this isn't just their personal loss, that on some level, this is a national tragedy. The loss of one person is a national tragedy, just like the loss of the Holy Temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. In other words, specifically at this time of, of loss, we reflect upon the concept of Jewish unity. Or as the Rebbe says in this, le in this letter, that the Jewish people, kol b'nei koima achas shlema. And uh, koima, you would probably translate as a structure. In Yiddish, it's a gestalt. But in regular, everyday parlance, we probably say one single entity, or even one monolith, which is a funny concept because sometimes we stress the diversity that we're all different and unique, but then sometimes we stress the fact that under, underlying it all, we're, we're one. You know, during the, uh, the mendel Bayless trial, the blood libel, which was revived in the early 1900s, after many hundreds of years of the blood libel finally being debunked. So, there was an anti-Semitic priest from Tashkent who had published uh, anti-Semitic books railing against what he understood to be the teachings of the Talmud. He couldn't read Hebrew or Aramaic, but he had certain strong opinions about the Talmud. And one of the things he said to aid the prosecution was that in the Talmud, it says, there's a verse that says, Odem Atem, Odem means human or person, Atem means you, plural. And the Gemara, the Talmud says, Atem, you, the Jewish people, Kruim Odem are called, Odem are called person. And that the non-Jewish nations are not called Odem. So he says, aha, you see, right there, their Talmud says that we're not even human, and that's why they commit these, uh, these acts of ritual murder and they take the blood of children. And So that's not what it means. But how are they going to explain in court what it does mean? You're going to give a, a class in Talmud. So Rav Meir Shapiro, who many know as the, the one who established the Daf Yemi, was one of the rabbinic consultants of the defense. And he wrote an explanation which the, the defense attorney was successfully able to convey at the trial. He said, look at this trial itself. 
there was a child who was murdered. He says, my client, the defendant, isn't the murderer, but yes, there was a child who was murdered. He was framed for the murder of this child. The trial went on for years. So he says, that child was murdered years ago. His family will never be the same, but I wonder about the neighbors. I wonder about the rest of the town. They've, they've moved on with life. And certainly you don't have people in other countries whose lives are permanently changed because of the passing of that child. He says, but look at Mendel Bayless, who's one Jew here on trial. And every Jew in the entire world, whether they're in England or in the United States or in Australia, wherever they are, the first thing they do every morning, they open up the paper and they check what's going on with the Mendel Bayless trial, as if they themselves are on trial. So he says, that's what it means. There are many words for human in Hebrew. And they each have a singular and a plural form. So you have ish and you have ishim. You have enosh, you have anoshim. You have gaver, you have gvarim. But the word adam doesn't have a plural. There's no plural of Now you can put a prefix there, b'nei adam, which means the children of Adam, but there's no plural, there's no Adamim. So he said, this is what it means. Atem kruim Adam. You, the Jewish people, are called Adam, are called a person. That the Jewish people uniquely are like one guy. So anything that happens to any Jew anywhere in the world is really happening to every Jew. And where do we see this? When, God forbid, a Jewish family experiences a loss. We say these words to stress this point that not only do we feel for you, we sympathize, but it's more than sympathize, it's empathize because at some level it's also happening to us. Obviously it's happening more acutely to the family, but we're all family. Second point that Eben makes in the letter is that when we think about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple that happened 2,000 years ago. We cannot think about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple without also thinking about the fact that we pray every single day and await every single day for, for Mashiach to come and rebuild the temple. So too, when we invoke the concept of the mourners of Zion and Jerusalem in a house of mourning, we're reminding the mourners that their loss is also a temporary loss, and we are all awaiting that their loved one should come back. That just like the temple will be rebuilt, and the third temple will be eternal and stand forever. We are awaiting the resurrection when souls will come back to bodies. And there will be no more death. So that is implicit in the comfort is the expectation that death is temporary and that ultimately there will be eternal life and eternal life not only in the spiritual realm but here in the physical world which, as we mentioned, is ultimately brought about through our physical actions, which we refer to as mitzvahs. Third point that Eben makes is 
that when the temple was destroyed, when the Romans and before them the Babylonians destroyed the temple, they destroyed, the Rebbe says, they destroyed only the temple that's built from wood and stones and silver and gold. But the inner temple, which is in the heart of every Jewish man and woman, the enemy's armies could not have any dominance, any domination over it. V'nitzchihu, it is eternal. And so too the Rebbe says that when a loved one passes away, it is a loss of the physical body, but their soul continues to live. And indeed, this is what the Rebbe says, precisely because their soul continues to live, that's why the relationship, the ongoing relationship between those in the embodiment is so crucial. Because the soul is very much alive. And the soul is very much aware of everything that's being done in the physical world on its behalf. Which is precisely why, as we mentioned, we who are in the physical world do physical things for the souls who cannot, for now, do anything physical on their own. So, um, I'm going to ask everybody to visit the website. Abbasin Wallowick mentioned it already, but I'll say it again. Mitzvahs for Levy. Is it a dot com, dot org? Dot com. Mitzvahs for Levy, dot com. And you'll make a commitment to do something physical, to do something tangible with your body while your soul is in a body. And that mitzvah that you do will have an effect on the entire physical world. And it will bring us closer to the perfection of this physical world. And then Levi and everyone who is awaiting re-embodiment through the resurrection through Mashiach will be back with us. And they'll be here forever. The Beis Hamikdash will be here forever. And at that point, it's a whole new beginning. It's what we're all waiting for. We've been waiting for 2,000 years. And it's our mitzvahs that will bring it about right away.